This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 20, New Entrance, Germany. We noted that Britain faced strategic challenges as the century matured and drew to its close. The emergence of a new Germany would add complexity to the maritime balance of power. In the early 19th century, Germany was a mere apprentice in the modern world, not yet industrialized, a politically fractionated culture with Prussia its largest entity. But in the late 19th century, a united Germany would emerge as the new Eurasian Titan, although geographically only a tiny part of that huge landmass. Like Italy, Germany had been dismissed as a mere geographical expression. Many Britons tended to scorn Germans as sluggish, a nation, a culture of poets and thinkers, musicians and metaphysicians, dreamers, not doers. At mid-century, the pace quickens. The internal market is extended by a customs union among the many German states and a burgeoning rail network that stimulates iron and machinery industries. In 1870, unification occurs after the Prussian War with France. Germans exact a huge indemnity from the vanquished French, and victory gives rise to a nationalist euphoria. Germany is still primarily an agricultural country, with a majority living on the land, but that percentage declines as many people move from agriculture in the east to mining and manufacturing in the West, to the mineral-rich Ruhr and Rhineland. Otto von Bismarck emerges as chancellor of a new empire, leader of the international system, that is, the European fringe of the Atlantic world, a major part of the global core of world power. Bismarck, was a formidably large, hulking figure with great drooping mustache, often accompanied by two enormous, slobbering mastiffs. 
He cultivated the image of disarming rusticity, a simple country squire presenting an imposingly stolid exterior. Yet his character was complex, his behavior highly emotional. He was given to fits of weeping, and he was a terrible public speaker, much given to the vocal pause. But the man was a consummate diplomat and the shrewdest statesman in Europe. His aggressiveness was never intemperate or impetuous, but always thoughtful and measured, and he was impervious to criticism. Bismarck instinctively distrusted liberalism and democracy, and the word realpolitique, a practical and opportunistic approach, could have been coined for him. Most known he was, perhaps by his dictum, not by speeches and majority votes are the great questions of the day decided, but by iron and blood. And yet he was cautious and prudent, anxious to maintain the peace. Unlike most statesmen or leaders, Bismarck had a strategy. It was sound, simple, consistent, and workable. His chief principle was for Germany to avoid encirclement. His focus was continental, and he was highly reluctant to join the oceanic powers in building overseas empires. But as chancellor, he served at the pleasure of the emperor. When a new emperor, Kaiser, took the throne, the mercurial William II dropped the pilot, fired Bismarck in 1890. International politics then became less stable. As we have seen in a strong monarchical state, the character of the monarch was important. Highly insecure, William II suffered from an inferiority complex. A birth injury shortened and crippled one arm, and the condition was painfully maltreated by inept physicians. William had the most indiscreet tongue among statesmen. At the time of the Boxer Uprising in 1900, he told the members of the German expeditionary force heading for Peking that they should give no quarter so that the Chinese would remember them as Europeans did the Huns, thus giving British propagandists a useful name for the Germans in World War I. The word would fit neatly in the headlines and carries unpleasant overtones. William was related to all the major ruling houses of Europe, the most disliked member of the greater European royal family. Even his grandmother, Queen Victoria, threw up her hands at Vili. In the late 19th century, the Germans observed growing British colonial and commercial empire with jealousy and a sense of inferiority. They feel that they've been cheated out of their place in the sun, as William put it. He embodied these grievances. 
Commercial rivalry with Britain rises, and a conscious political and naval competition flares. William set a new course for Germany, an aggressive and ambitious foreign policy, colored by his ambivalence toward Britain and his British mother. Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary, described William as like a battleship with steam up and screw going, but with no rudder, and he will run into something someday and cause a catastrophe. William had a passion for the sea and was known as the Fleet Kaiser. A keen sailor, he spent more than one-third of his reign aboard his yacht, Hohenzollern. Not surprisingly, he was an ardent navalist, seeking, as he put it, to raise Neptune's trident for Germany. Even though often ill-informed, he never hesitated to express his opinions vigorously on naval matters. Modern German naval growth was perhaps not as exotic as Britain claimed. Germans could boast a long Baltic maritime commercial tradition with the cities of Hanseatic League comparable in regional influence to the Italian maritime city-states like Venice and Genoa. Yet, after the unification of 1871, the German navy was long inconsequential, weak until the close of the century and with an uncertain mission. Was it coastal defense or something more? In June 1897, all this would change when Alfred Tirpitz took control of the Imperial Navy office. With his long forked beard and piercing eyes, the Admiral, a strong personality, cut an imposing, even daunting figure. A naval arms race would ensue. Tirpitz saw Britain as the most dangerous enemy. Bismarck would not agree, but he was out of power, rusticated to his country estate. Tirpitz decided that he wanted a navy with a battleship fleet, arguing that the survival of the nation was at stake. He saw the navy as synonymous with power and greatness. Intolerant of those who opposed him and ruthlessly determined, Tirpitz preferred persuasion and manipulation, employing these tactics adeptly within the government and the business community. A wily politician, he got Parliament to agree to automatic replacement of warships by type and by schedule, thus escaping the normal budgetary process. It guaranteed the number of units, but also made it possible to replace small old ships with large new ones in each category, battleships and cruisers. Tirpitz himself never commanded a major warship, let alone a fleet, but he forged a tremendous weapon and did it quickly. Ships and men were both of highest quality, 
reflecting the high standards of German education and manufacture. High organizational skills kept more of their fleet ready for action than those of others. Nearly 80% were combat-ready, operating at a high standard of efficiency. The Navy Tirpitz created was immensely costly to the taxpayer and highly profitable to the armaments industry. It was a major provoker of World War I. Yet, during the war, its centerpiece, the high seas fleet, proved of marginal importance. Tirpitz built the fleet without first thinking about how to use it. His program set off a naval arms race with Britain, and this competition encouraged rapid warship obsolescence. Tirpitz's uh, British counterpart was Sir John Fisher, the most prominent British admiral since Nelson. Like Tirpitz, Fisher made his name in administration, not in combat like Nelson. Fisher's professional life spanned enormous changes. He entered the Royal Navy as a young boy in the age of sail and recalled his entrance examination as simple. Recite the Ten Commandments, do ten push-ups, drink a glass of sherry. Fisher was a rebel, ambitious, energetic, and determined to bring the Royal Navy into the 20th century. For his aggressive manner, many detested him, refusing to join the fish pond as his followers were described. He tread heavily on many toes, and with his odd frog face and jaundice complexion, to some he seemed somehow non-English. Among those outside the fish pond, he picked up the nickname the Yellow Peril. Fisher's passion was a new type of capital ship, attempting to find a balance among the desiderata, guns, speed, and armor protection, combining the assets of battleship and cruiser. For his ideal ship, Fisher was ready to sacrifice armor. He argued, speed is armor. This was the battle cruiser, and these ships bore magnificent names, invincible, indomitable, inflexible. Their speed and huge guns called forth an image of great jungle cats, swift and deadly, with large shining claws, the gleaming barrels of their 12-inch guns. Fisher saw them as a worldwide instrument of naval power, phasing out battleships. Fisher's strategic view was not shared by his colleagues, and the battle cruiser would ultimately lose out to the battleship. Battleships seemed to be what was most needed. This was the doctrine of the American captain Alfred Thayer Mahan, expressed in his Influence of Sea Power Upon History, published in 1890, a book with huge impact in naval circles everywhere. 
Fisher and others decided on a new type of battleship, and the Dreadnought enters service in December 1906, built in utmost secrecy. Fisher knew that other navies were contemplating the type, and he wanted to beat them to it. Dreadnought becomes an eponymous prototype for a heavily armored, all-big-gun ship powered by steam turbine, faster and more powerful than any other battleship. It revolutionized navies, making all earlier battleships instantly obsolete. It meant that everyone now started with a clean slate, and this new type had to be built at drastically increased construction costs. Germany, the new rival, could now begin on equal terms with Britain. The dreadnought becomes a status symbol, an icon like the nuclear weapon in our age. And if a nation could build one itself, it might consider itself a true great power. An arms race begins Germany versus Britain, and Tirpitz was convinced that the British would fail to keep up. The German naval budget soars to one-third of the total national figure, but the British maintain their lead. In World War I, at the Great Battle of Jutland, 1916, Fisher's battle cruisers fare badly. They were put in line facing battleships, not their intended use. But the Royal Navy is able to keep the German high seas fleet bottled up. On the eve of that war, Tirpitz changes his mind and advocates submarines, but it is too late. Germany enters the war with fewer submarines than Britain, France, or even Russia. Einigkeit und Recht und Freiheit für das deutsche Vaterland. Building a fleet is a nice illustration of German achievement. Clearly, an industrial base has become essential to producing advanced weaponry. Only great economic powers can also be naval powers. Europe has a monopoly in the latter 19th century, but is challenged soon both by Japan and the USA. Casting guns, fashioning engines, rolling armor plate demand a high level of skills. Naval technology and engineering benefited from Germany's new industrial prowess, drawing upon the raw resources of Rhineland, coal, and iron. And Germany surges ahead in new industries, a second industrial revolution of steel and electricity. Electricity allows a whole new set of industries to emerge, the telephone, the phonograph, the movies, and it radically alters the production processes of every old industry. 
Small motors make new configurations of machinery possible. The electric light bulb can turn night into day. People had slept an average of nine hours. Now it becomes slightly more than seven. Germany leads with chemicals, machinery such as the internal combustion engine, with firms such as Bayer, IG Farben, Mercedes-Benz. In creating its chemical industry, Germany gives birth to the corporate research lab. Germans establish the concept of systematic industrial research. The first industrial revolution was a product of the machine shop. The second industrial revolution was a product of the research lab. This was based on a recognition that technological advances did not just randomly happen. They could be made to happen. German accomplishment rested upon education, enabling an increase in the productivity of labor, and a high German work ethic attracted international admiration, as it still does today. Here was the world's best elementary school system and the highest literacy rate, innovative technical schools, and the best universities with unique graduate programs, including the first seminars. Sciences, medicine, and music flourished, and more books were published annually than in any other country. Intellectuals everywhere felt obliged to learn German. Wilhelmine Germany was far more oriented to science and technology than Victorian Britain. It had five times the number of students in technical colleges and universities. By the end of the century, German products were doing well at world's fairs and ultimately come to be renowned for their quality. The British find their overseas sales are being leached by German competition and German salesmanship. By 1910, these Yankees of Europe were forging one quarter of the world's steel and militarily appeared ready to challenge both Russia and Britain, Russia on land, Britain at sea. This generated apprehension for all concerned. Germans feared encirclement. Others feared this new power. But Germany did not overtake Britain in per capita income until the 1960s and never caught up in shipping, overseas banking, or textiles. For Germans, we can see an internal tension between the oceanic and the continental. In the West, the Hanseatic Baltic tradition undergirded an oceanic Germany led by Hamburg merchants and nearby Frankfurt bankers, pressing out into the North Sea and the Atlantic, drawing from the mineral-based prosperity of the industrial Rhineland and nurturing a liberal political tradition with an oceanic view. The East remained largely agrarian, a continental Germany led by rural aristocrats like Bismarck, 
the Junker tradition of heel-clicking, monocle-wearing, conservative militarists pressing out into Silesia, Poland, the southern Baltic fringes and beyond, embodying that ancient continental expansionistic urge against the world of the Slav. I suggest that an unresolved tension between these two Germanies, the trading interests versus the territorial interests, contributed to the failure to create a unified strategy, an uncertain focus, and the loss of two world wars. But Germany was only one of the new powers on the sea. On the farther side of Eurasia, Japan re-emerged, startling the world. Stay tuned to hear that story in episode 21, Japanese Reemergence. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.